The virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. Uh, typically, that will go away in April. We're in great shape, though. We're in great shape, though. That was Donald Trump reassuring the American public on February 10th, 2020, that the coronavirus was nothing to worry about. But where did the president of the United States get the idea that the novel virus would simply disappear once the warmer weather of spring arrived? According to Josh Rogan, foreign policy columnist for The Washington Post and author of a new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century, it was planted during a phone call just a few days earlier from the president of China himself. Xi, Rogan writes, assured the American president that the virus was under control and no threat to the outside world and would likely go away once the weather got warmer. Even though his own scientists were telling him something very different, Trump bought it. A glaring example of how the Chinese government was able to manipulate our government about the most pressing threat to the health and welfare of our citizens. But as Rogan describes it, the Chinese threat to our economy, to our intellectual property, to our trade, to our national security itself is now the most pressing foreign policy issue of our time. We'll talk to Rogan about how he came to that conclusion on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we'll be talking about COVID-19 one year later, um, a bit later this week when we uh, explore the excellent Yahoo News project, oral history, uh, about the past year. But I just got to say, when I read this nugget in Rogan's book about the phone call between Xi and Trump, and the more you think about it, you know, the more stunning it is. You know, it was Xi Jinping, the president of China, who's giving Trump his talking points that he accepts and then mouths to the American public. And of course, so many of our citizens bought that, believed that, wanted to believe that. Of course, Trump wanted to believe it, in spite of all the contrary evidence coming from the president's own scientists. Yeah, look, it's a brilliant book about China and amazing reporting. And I Looking forward to talking to Rogan uh, about it. But um, that nugget uh, tells doesn't tell you a ton about China. It tells you a lot about Donald Trump. I mean, it does tell you. And how Xi- easy he was to manipulate. Yes. Xi Jinping, right. you know, was uh, was clever in that he understood early on that he could uh, manipulate uh, this president. But the truth is, uh, this is something that happened to Donald Trump uh, over and over again for four years. And for whatever reason was, you know, is it because he was naive, because he was desperate to make a deal, because he succumbed easily to flattery or because Xi Jinping told him something that he wanted to hear, which was this virus was going to go away and no one needed to worry about it. All was going to be good because his presidential uh, election was looming. But And, um, and by the way, it's not the only nugget along these lines in Rogan's book about 
people getting to Trump doing the Chinese government's bidding, right? Uh, there's another one we'll be talking to him about uh, yeah. involving the casino magnate Steve Wynn being used by the Chinese to push a, a narrative to Trump. It's not an easy issue. The Chinese have you know, a horrendous human rights record. They clearly are doing everything they can to uh, conduct influence operations in our country and um, manipulate the American public writ large. On the other hand, they are a global superpower. On the other hand, you know, they are key to so many issues that are important to our national security, including North Korea, for instance, and the threat of a North Korean nuclear weapon. And you have the added dimension of we have millions of Chinese American citizens. And the more we demonize, you know, the Chinese, the more that becomes becomes a, a security threat for uh, loyal American citizens. Oh, yeah, we, we have enormous interests entangled uh, in, in China and China's future. And, you know, you, you can't really, you know, deal with this problem with a sledgehammer, which is, I think, a lot of what um, the Trump administration uh, was doing over the last uh, few years. I will say about Rogan, um, you know, who we've known for a long time, who I worked with at uh, Newsweek in the, in the Daily Beast, is he is both a terrific um, reporter and scoopster, but he is also uh, someone who has thought a lot about China and American foreign policy and, um, you know, and, and how to manage that difficult relationship. And so there's a lot that, um, you know, I think people will learn reading this book about all of those complexities. And, you know, we know a lot of people who are, you know, amazing reporters and get lots of scoops. And we know others who are sage uh, foreign policy analysts. Um, but it's rare to have someone who's a columnist who also breaks news all the time. And that is um, Josh Rogan. So and the book does both of those things extremely well. Okay, he just got several blurbs out of uh, <laughs> your uh, little assessment there. Um, so uh, on that note, let's get to it. We now have with us Josh Rogan, uh, author of Chaos, Trump G, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh and esteemed Washington Post, uh, and esteemed Washington Post columnist. columnist. Yes, of course. Welcome back to Skullduggery. My return appearance. Um, I should tell you, Josh, uh, uh, just up front, we were hoping to get the. Uh, Duke and Duchess of Sussex for this show. Um, uh, they chose to go elsewhere. Um, so I'm really glad you could Don't fill give in, in their Don't place. Yeah. I was going to do Oprah, but then at the last minute, I decided to do your podcast instead. So. <laughs> okay. Touche. So quite a uh, fascinating book uh, you've written here about the U.S.-China competition. I want to start out where you started out, where you talk about the awakening that you and other foreign policy mavens have had in recent years, some not so recent, about the threat from China. And I want you to sort of describe what that awakening was for you and what it should mean for the rest of us. Sure. Uh, basically, what I say in the prologue of the book, Chaos Under Heaven, is that, you know, over the last 40 years, and this is, you know, boiling it down a bit to be sure. Uh, we've had a, a largely um, uh, bipartisan, 
consensus that we should approach China from a position of open engagement on the bet, on the bargain that if we integrate China as much as possible into our systems and into our uh, country and into our and into the order as we know it, that uh, China would eventually liberalize economically and in turn that would cause them to liberalize politically and that would in turn solve the rest of our problems with China. We could all live in peace and coexistence. And I what I witnessed personally in Washington over the last, you know, 17 odd years, but what sped up greatly during the Trump administration was a growing number of people who became convinced uh, that that bet had now been lost, that for whatever reason, whether we prosecuted it poorly or they changed their minds or they never intended to do it in the first place, we had to now admit that under the regime of Xi Jinping, that China was going a different way and they had no intention of liberalizing politically and that, you know, we had to sort of adjust our approach to reflect that because that was the increasingly obvious reality. And that sort of matched a parallel awakening, I think, that, that started amongst those who watch China very closely, especially inside the U.S. government, but spread slowly throughout Washington and then quickly throughout the country, and I would argue around the world, that the rise of China, complex and challenging as it is, now affects us in our daily lives in new and undeniable ways. And it affects our media and in our academia and on Wall Street, and all of a sudden it affected our public health. And I think the pandemic unpredictably and tragically brought that home to every human citizen that what happens in Beijing no longer stays in Beijing, okay? And if you put those two sorts of trends together, a, a broad recognition that the U.S.-China relationship is simply the most important bilateral relationship in the world and the most important foreign policy issue that we have in this generation going forward for as long as probably we'll be in this business. And then the other awakening, which is that the Chinese government's behavior outside of its own borders, forget about inside of its own borders for a second, but just outside of its own borders, is becoming more and more of a problem. And you know, if, if you can get people that far, then we can have a, a debate over what to do about it. And it's complex and it's not something that we all have to agree on right away. But that's sort of what the book tracks is that, you know, both of these trends ran smack into something that nobody ever predicted it was the election of Donald Trump as president. The Chinese kind of predicted it. You didn't. Predict, I didn't predict it. And uh, all of a sudden you have like this very complex, you know, confrontation brewing. And then the art side is put in the hands of a president who essentially doesn't know what he's doing, but thinks he does and has a very well-formed view of China that doesn't match anything it has to do with what his government thinks or what the reality is. And this kicks off four years of just sort of factional fighting, bureaucratic intransigence and, you know, political mayhem that ran into the coronavirus. And that's just like five crazy stories that all kind of converged as I was writing the book. And that's what the awakening is. Yeah. I, so I want to pick up on that on that last point, which is the subject of, of much of your book, because. You know, it's interesting, the awakening that you that you talked about, your personal awakening um, and the awakening of many China hands um, in, in the United States and around the world um, is also a, a, an awakening, I guess, in some sense that the Trump people had. They took office when they took office. People were giving up uh, on this idea that engagement could lead to uh, real political reform and, and liberalization. And what's interesting to me, uh, Josh, is that, you know, by the middle or toward the end of the of the 2020 campaign, 
the Biden people, you know, the rhetoric was almost the same. There was almost a competition about who could be uh, tougher uh, on on China. The difference is, it seems to me, and you lay out very well in your book, is how you know the Trump administ- administration approached uh, the policy, and the, the key word is chaos. So I want you to talk a little bit about the different factions. I think you uh, you break them down into three different groups, uh, the super hawks, the Wall Street clique, and the axis of adults. So talk about- I forgot um, the billionaires. The there's, billionaires more, there's the billionaires, club. there's right. the hardliners, <laughs> okay, there's the bureaucrats. Right. That's right. <laughs> and then there are people who don't belong in any particular faction. You were talking about assorted alliances for that, that are based on overlapping interests that change over time. And so you have, you know, on the one hand, you have super hawks like Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, and they're economic nationalists and Stephen Miller. And they're also very intent on taking down the CCP. OK, and that is, you know, to my mind, kind of a ridiculous thing to be for, because it's, of course, you know, that's not our role in foreign policies to take down a foreign government. And also, I don't think we could do it if we tried. But That's what they think. And then they have sort of an assorted alliance with the hardliners. And these are sort of national security and law enforcement people who are very worried about Chinese military aggression, Chinese economic aggression, uh, Chinese influence efforts, propaganda, and are fighting the intelligence war behind the scenes. And in some ways, their interests overlap with the super hawks. The axis of adults are these like Washington famous people like McMaster and, you know, and, and General Kelly and, and, and they're, they, they fashion themselves and Jim Mattis and they fashion themselves as like the keepers of the Republic, right? And they're preventing the mad King from driving the car off the road. They think they're defending democracy. And in a sense, maybe they are, but in the other sense, they also have their own interests and their own views, which mesh in weird ways. Then you've got the wall street people like Mnuchin, and they've got different interests and different billionaires behind them. And then you have Jared Kushner, who's Trump's closest advisor and one of the most influential people in the U.S.-China relationship. And he's doing it very secretly and sort of very carefully. And he's doing it to get his father-in-law what his father-in-law wants, which is a deal, which runs counter to all the rest of the things we're talking about. That's the chaos. OK. And, you know, when you want to talk about sort of an awakening, you know, this is not just about the Trump administration and government. This is about, you know, what is China doing on American campuses, you know, and that's a big issue. And all of a sudden, all these different schools around the country had different groups of people who were like, wait a minute, should we take a look at these Confucius Institutes? Are they really a problem? I joined the GW Confucius Institute. I'm in a GW alumnus. I walked over there. I paid my tuition and I signed up for Chinese 101. Guess what? There was no malign activity going on in that Chinese 101 class. We were just learning some Chinese, okay? But at other Confucius Institutes, it's a big problem. Same thing happened on Wall Street, same thing happened in the tech industry. You know, the way we have to sort of think about this is that the broad trend of a U.S. competition with China is not something that we're going to be able to avoid. And the Trump administration played the first sort of inning of it. And they made some errors and they had some hits and it didn't go the way they wanted it to. Uh, But some things that were done we're going to have to build on. And then during 2020, after the pandemic hit, the politics turned. OK, and this is what I saw from the Biden team. I identify three. Right. They have people who are very competition focused, like hawks. Then they have people who are very sort of engagement focused, who are left over from the old era. And then you have the political people. And two out of three wins the day. And what happened in 2020 is that the politics changed, the polling changed in real time. You could track it. Many people did. And once the Biden team realized that the politics were way on one side, and again, you could blame that on 
Trump's rhetoric, which was often racist and terrible. Or you could blame that on the Chinese Communist Party, which is, you know, committing genocide and doing all sorts of crazy stuff or both. Either way, the Biden people made a very smart, calculated decision that now a tougher China policy was what was good for them. You could also say it the other way that it's what the people of the United States want. As long as we're on COVID for the moment, uh, there is um, one nugget in your book that leapt out at me, and that is the phone call that Trump has with President Xi on February 6th, 2020. Trump has been briefed at this point that COVID is maybe the most serious threat to the country and his presidency. He had just imposed the ban on Chinese travel. Xi calls him and tells Trump that uh, China had uh, COVID under control. The virus was not a threat uh, to the outside world and that it was sensitive to temperature and therefore would likely go away once the weather gets warmer and just a few days later, Trump is speaking at the White House with state governors. And guess what? He says exactly that. The virus that we're talking about, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat as the heat comes in. Basically, you suggest Xi, the president of China, planted this with the president of the United States and manipulated him. Yeah, no, I'm not suggesting it. I'm reporting it. He, okay. He... he the president of China lied to the president of the United States on multiple occasions about the coronavirus. And Trump bought it. Well, we don't know what was in Trump's mind. Either he believed it or he wanted to believe it. Because remember, at this time, he also had an interest in downplaying the virus. Now, he talked about it different ways at different times. And even in the same sentence, in the same you know, interviews, when he had that interview with uh, Bob Woodward, he says both things. He says, oh, yeah, she told me it's going to be fine. Oh, but it's very tricky. So he's talking out of both sides of his mouth because he's getting conflicting information in his brain. And some of it's coming from Xi and some of it's coming from, you know, his national security officials and some of it's coming from his political aides who are like, this is no good. What are you going to shut down the airports in the middle of your election? Does that sound like a great idea? So the way Trump speaks, he garbles all these things in his head and then they come out of his mouth all garbled. And that's why the policy was so messed up. So but 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 Josh, he gets spun, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, totally. And and and, and what's your theory about he that? He wants to be spun, though. You have to. Sort but of- is it is it because he's naive? Is it because he's desperate for a deal and he thinks that uh, well, what's his I think she was telling him what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear no nothing to see here. He wanted to tell the American people nothing to see here. And Every third conversation he had inside the White House, somebody said, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. But he'd listen to the other two, which is what we know about Donald Trump as president, is he would listen to all the opinions and choose the one that he already agreed with. And let's remember here, if you look through the book, there's a a ton of examples of uh, she telling Trump stuff to get around his officials and to, to tell him the opposite thing. And Trump, you know, did favors for she and bailed out Chinese tech companies for she, you know, on a whim you know, thwarting the rest of his own government's tough on China policy. That's what these people were dealing with. And so, yeah, the uh, there's no other way to say it, but that the president of China was manipulating the president of the United States. But I just think we have to be honest and say that he was getting manipulated by a lot of people all the time. It seems like, you know, Xi Jinping just happened to be really good at it in the cases where he did it on the coronavirus. It happened to have devastating effects for our country and our public health. One of the things you you do is sort of really deep dive into uh, how China covered up 
COVID, you know, denied access to the outside world, put out a lot of misleading stuff about the origins of uh, the virus. And I understand you also, uh, although you've got a great account of it in the book, you also have some fresh reporting on the origins of the virus in China. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, when I first reported in April 2020 about these uh, two diplomatic cables that these U.S. diplomats sent back after visiting the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, at that moment in time, if you just think back to where we were, I mean, it was just crazy. The issue of the pandemic was super politicized. Uh, The issue of the origin of the pandemic was super politicized. Of course, it still is. But in that moment, what had happened was, and I sort of tell the backstory in the book, is that, you know, inside the government, they were having the same debate. Is there any evidence it came from the lab? And some people in the intelligence community said no. And some people really thought it was came from the market. And then the Chinese government disavowed the market theory and everyone was confused. And then Pompeo said there's enormous evidence it came from the lab, but then he didn't show anybody what the evidence was. But just just to be clear, what they're talking about is a leak from the lab, not a deliberately created virus right and just to be clear bio warfare or whatever you know this is what i like to say when we start talking about this we don't know how the coronavirus originated i don't know donald trump doesn't know mike pompeo doesn't know joe biden doesn't know the problem was that because the official chinese government story about the market had so many holes in it but it became adopted so universally that uh, it was hard to unring that bell And it was hard for the politics to compensate for the fact that Trump, you know, is lying all the time. So when Trump says it's the lab, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's probably lying. And and why? And by the way, when 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 Senator Tom Cotton um, strongly suggested that it might have been a uh, A bio warfare, bio warfare, uh, then people. And including in the media, we're conflating those issues. And exactly. And that's why I just want to be real precise here, because I know people are going to listen to this and I want to be absolutely clear. There's the theory that it came from a lab, as the result of human error in the lab, lab accident is different than the theory that it's a bioweapons program. Right. And that's different from the theory that it's spilled over in nature. And we don't know which theory is correct. OK. And basically what happened was inside the U.S. government, as they tried to get more information, they realized that there was a Chinese government cover-up going on. And the Chinese government cover-up uh, was so extensive that it really made finding the origin really impossible. And at the same time, they were threatening by withholding the PPE and masks from countries all over the world. That made it really impossible for anyone to advocate in favor of that investigation. Now, here we are a year later, and the WHO is going in with their investigation, and it's you know, very flawed and they don't have the right data. And the scientists that they chose are the best friends of the scientists at the lab. It would be like if Michael Isakoff was accused of starting the pandemic and they sent you in, Dan, to investigate, right? Somebody would probably have an issue with that. Someone would be like, oh, that doesn't mean Dan's not a nice guy or that he's, you know, trying to hide up the coronavirus. But someone might say, Maybe he sh- and then you went over to Mike Liskoff's house and you were like, hey, did you start the pandemic? And he was like, no, I just said, OK, case closed. All right, let's all go home. You know, it's just preposterous. You and don't know how you know, this the, guy you works. Know, the Trump people <laughs> like, you know, looking at that and they said, oh, oh, this this is not good. But they didn't have any credibility either. So that's why the Biden administration has to, in my view, has a responsibility to untangle this. And they've actually begun to do that. And the news that I broke uh, in The Washington Post was that 
they looked over some of the claims that the Trump administration made about this lab, and they found that the facts that the Trump administration put forward are largely accurate. In fact, they didn't dispute any one of them. They didn't dispute the fact that there were a bunch of sick researchers in November 2019 with COVID-like symptoms at the Wuhan lab, or that the lab was doing secret work with the Chinese military, or that it was not disclosing some of its work on back coronaviruses. And if you just think about those three facts, you're like, okay, well, now that's not the Trump administration's claims. That's just what U.S. government believes. What does that add up to in your mind? It adds up to the need for a bit more of an investigation, which, by the way, is the exact same thing that the Biden administration is now calling for and not the investigation that we got when the WHO, they went into the lab, asked the best friends, did you do it? They said, absolutely not. They said, OK, you know, that's it's not going to cut it. They cannot be the end all be all. Can, so, yeah. Isn't, you know, this a, isn't this also a problem, Josh, with how politicized the issue and the relationship has become because, totally. because it I think you point out in the book the importance of this is not really just about assigning blame it's about getting to the bottom of the origin of this virus so that we can prevent the next one exactly and you know again I think there's plenty of blame to go around and you can blame the Chinese Communist Party for putting their political interest above the health and welfare of humankind, okay, because they could have shared more information that could have saved a lot of lives. But, you know, you also must blame the Trump administration. You know, you had the the president of the United States saying racist anti-Asian slurs at rallies for months. And then we have a huge uptick in Asian American violence. That's horrible. All right. We can't have that. You know, so put some blame on the Chinese Communist Party, put some blame on the Trump administration. You know, a pox on both their houses. By the way, there was a fascinating detail, uh, many fascinating details in your book, but one that leapt out at me was there was actually a debate about what to call the virus. They wanted to sound tough on China and they wanted to sounded like they wanted to sort of. Right. Pompeo was supposed to call it the Wuhan virus. The Wuhan. That was that was deemed acceptable because it it did. It wasn't overtly racist. Right. 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 But then Trump didn't just didn't do what they wanted him to do when he called it the Chinese virus. And then the war of words was on. Now, in my opinion, if the Wuhan virus term is offensive, then we shouldn't use it. And it's offensive if people are offended by it. So I'm fine not using any term that offends Asian Americans because we have to avoid that. Okay. Well, That's then, important. of course, he started calling it the Kung flu at his rallies. Awful. And, you know, and, 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 and you know, and real people get hurt behind that kind of nonsense and we have to shut it down wherever we see it but at that time and place they thought for whatever reason that the term wuhan virus wasn't that bad but it didn't matter because trump didn't listen to them anyway and he said the more racist thing anyway so look the 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 fundamental premise of the book covid aside is that china presents the biggest and most consequential national security threat to our country sure and i want to um Cite for you a new piece out in Foreign Affairs by Ryan Haas, former China director of the National Security Council under uh, Obama, entitled China is not 10 feet tall, how alarmism undermines American strategy. During the Cold War, he writes, uh, Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger cautioned against 10-foot-tall syndrome, the tendency among U.S. policymakers to view their Soviet competitors as towering uh, giants of immense strength and overwhelming intellect. A similar syndrome has taken hold in the United States today, and the harms are not just analytical. Concentrating on China's strengths without accounting for its vulnerabilities creates anxiety that breeds insecurity. Insecurity leads to overreaction and overreaction produces bad decisions that undermines the United States. Um, 
Yeah. He seems to be taking issue with your fundamental premise. Well, I don't think he's taking issue with my premise because he wrote that before he read the book, obviously. But I, I know Ryan and he's a serious scholar. And I think the idea that he's putting forth is a caution that we can overreact. And I think that's valid. Now, to be clear, my premise is that this is the most important issue in our foreign policy, not that we should do everything we can possibly think of all the time. Again, you know, I'm, I don't think we should have this hubristic idea that we can make China into a system that's like ours. I think China's development will be driven by the Chinese people for sure, one way or another. But I think what we have to focus on, although we want China to stop committing atrocities against its own people inside its borders, what we have to focus on is where China's actions and the Chinese Communist Party's actions affect our lives and impact our security. So I'm all for we have to figure out what we protect and what we don't protect. And we have to figure out where our lines are. And that's a conversation that we all need to have. So, you know, yes, there are there is a maximalist position, which is like we're, we're going to have to take down the CCP or or they're going to take down us. That's not what I believe. And well, let, let's let's explore this a little bit, because I think often Americans have a hard time understanding it's sort of where you where you began, but have a hard time understanding how China's rise and its very kind of aggressive moves on the world stage affects them personally. You know, when when they hear about, you know, their maritime claims in the in the South China Sea or, you know, predatory economic behavior, currency manipulation, whatever, it seems very distant or abstract. So right. you you talk about how the, the the Chinese Communist Party has kind of infiltrated all of these different aspects That's of right. American life. That's you right. Know, you mentioned it: tech, uh, Wall Street, Wall academia, Street, um, Hollywood, the me, you know, media. Yeah. So so talk about that a little bit. How how should the average person out there think about China and how it affects them? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question because you know a lot of the book is reporting on what we call sort of Chinese influence and interference operations, and it's a very tough subject to talk about because it's designed to be tough. And basically the premise is that somewhere in between sort of the overt ways that countries exert power, which is sort of, you know, soft power and propaganda and state media and the secret ways that countries exert power, which is sort of like through spying and stealing in between, there's a gray area. It's overt actions that conceal a covert purpose. It's like when you, when you have a, a, a Confucius Institute on your campus, is it just to spread Chinese culture or are they using it in order to watch over Chinese students and prevent them from having free speech on American campuses? And by the way, prevent the Dalai Lama from ever coming to school, to that school. The answer is sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. When you invest in a Chinese company, is that Chinese company participating in atrocities? Is that OK with you? Well, different people might have a, a different answer. And when it comes to the, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, what we call United Front work, which is, again, is a, is a kind of a new concept for most Americans. But most Americans have seen some aspect of it in their lives if they've looked hard enough. You know, what they're doing is they're co-opting American elites and co-opting American institutions in order to disable the sort of antibodies in a healthy democracy. In other words, if your pension is invested in all Chinese companies, you're not really going to be, if you think about it, you know, for sanctioning a bunch of Chinese companies. If you're you know, academic career is based on money from a Chinese Communist Party front organization. Well, you're not going to be writing a lot of anti-Uyghur genocide articles because that's human nature. So when we when we got to use to foreign interference in 2016, it was like the Russian style, which is like a military operation. And they got bots and trolls and armies of just like Facebook groups and just really loud and clanky. But the Chinese Communist Party, they build influence and interfere slowly over time. And they do it with a ton of money and often through proxies. And the idea is to put 
their political aims and agendas into American voices and to have them coming out of American mouths and to launder them through American institutions. And it is a very difficult thing to talk about, but that's why you got to read the book because it's all in there. It's all described in there. And again, it's very important that we say we can't make our country inhospitable to Chinese people and Chinese students contribute a lot to our society. And we have to have research exchanges. We just have to do it smart. We have to do it in a way that they're not abusing our engagement to screw us over. And if we can just rebalance that, and this is kind of, again, not a maximalist position. And I agree with Ryan Haas. We got we to gotta make sure we don't overreact because that would be stupid, right? But we got to figure out a way to change what we're doing because right now the balance is tipping out of our direction in ways that are dangerous. And I think when you talk about most Americans who are stuck inside their houses right now, they don't know that it has something to do with China, but they they're wondering right now if maybe it has something to do with China. And that, you know, the answer is that it does. Well, it's funny. You should you know, I'm thinking here. One of the things that the Chinese have done is they've in the past is they've infiltrated Zoom. Right. Which all. Yeah, I wrote a whole article about. And and the three of us are sitting here on this very discussion. (laughs) Yeah, I published the book. So my my my, I'm an open book. So have that. All right. Um, let's talk about some of the uh, more delicious nuggets in the book, uh, which uh, you know reflects the chaos of the title and the chaos of the Trump White House. Uh, but one I particularly enjoyed was the role of Steve Wynn oh, in yeah. uh, pushing the Chinese agenda inside the White House to the president of the United States, uh, and in particular, trying to get Trump spun up to expel and return to China a wayward Chinese billionaire who Xi and the CCP viewed as a threat. Uh, Tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, this could be like a serial podcast series all by itself. But what you've got here is like, you know, when when Trump gets to these like fundraisers, all these billionaires come up to him and they shake his hand and they try to get him to do something or say something. And they're like, I'll call you later about something. So one night at the Trump International Hotel in Washington at RNC fundraiser, billionaire Steve Wynn goes up to his old friend Trump and he says, listen, we got to get this guy. There's a fugitive in New York. We got to get him out. Xi Jinping told me to tell you that we got to get this guy out because he's out there raping everybody. And Trump is like, oh, okay. And then he gives him a packet of information. Now, this is Trump then takes that information into the White House and he calls in a bunch of his staff. and He's like, we got to get this rapist out of here. We got to get this rapist out of here. And everyone's like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Because this would happen all the time is some billionaire would put some bug in Trump's ear and then his staff has to try to sort it out. In, in like reverse chronology. So listeners know what we're talking about here. Steve Wynn is a casino magnate from Las Vegas who's got casinos in Macau and very much dependent on um, uh, Chinese customers. Right. And he fashions himself as some sort of like diplomatic go-between when no one actually gave him that role. And he's also like the vice chairman of the Republican National Committee finance uh, arm. Yeah, he's a donor, you know, and he's not supposed to be our our envoy to the president of China. And by the way, he was lying. He didn't actually hear that from the president of China. He just told Trump that and Trump believed it. Long story short, they have this discussion in the Oval Office about whether or not to get this fugitive out of the United States who is this Chinese billionaire named Guo Wenguai, who's a very complicated individual who used to be aligned with the Chinese Communist Party intelligence services until he was purged and he escaped and joined Mar-a-Lago and became a good friends with Steve Bannon. So they eventually they convinced Trump that you just can't ship people out 
of the country when a billionaire comes up and hands you a letter, you know? And so Guo is still here to this day. But what ended up happening is that it ended up unraveling an entire sort of crazy lob illegal lobbying effort that involved Steve Wynn, Elliot Broidy, another billionaire whose name has come up. And they all went to Shenzhen to meet with the Ministry of State Security official and then came back and tried to convince Trump to do it. And they almost succeeded. But it was just sort of the, the randomness of the process that Trump ended up being convinced not to throw this guy out of the country. He ends up coming back into play in 2020 because he runs a media site with Steve Bannon that's basically leaking all of the Hunter Biden laptops. This guy is also known as Miles Kwok, right? He's yes. the same guy. And 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 he he's kind of Steve Bannon's uh patron or sugar daddy. He's his pan um, master. And and am I right? Did did Bannon when Bannon was arrested? It was on uh, his yacht. Uh, for um, scamming uh, the 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 you know the the whole wall build the wall scam that was on my on this guy's yacht right he happened to be on that yacht that day that's true and you know uh, you know uh, Bannon was a director in Guo's media company you know basically they do all their media stuff together and they do it in Chinese and in English and then they they have this thing it's called the New Federated State of China where they think they're building like some sort of like government in exile that's going to replace the CCP. That's a, a whole nother mess. You know, Guo is complicated and, and I want to be careful because he's a very litigious guy. But basically what what, you know, he's been doing is he, he's been posing as a dissident, but hunting American uh, Chinese dissidents in America and all over the world. And what he does is he sends these followers that he that are follow his movement to the houses of other dissidents, Tiananmen Square massacre, student leaders, uh, Christian Chinese dissidents to harass them. You know what I mean? They call them CCP spies. So it's just a tangled, tangled web that like even 400 pages of the book, I couldn't completely untangle, but I got as close, I think, as anyone has, you know, and this is just sort of, again, you know, Chinese politics and American politics mixing in untoward ways and and in ways that are definitely not good. So I want to ask you about... um a couple of other characters you write in the book in terms of your larger theme about Chinese influence in the United States. And one section I found particularly fascinating was Wendy Murdoch, the former wife of Rupert Murdoch, in which you raise some questions about her. Tell us about Wendy Murdoch and what you concluded. You know, Everyone remembers the story in the Wall Street Journal when it reported that uh, the FBI had warned Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump that their good friend Wendy Dang Murdoch, who used to be married to Rupert Murdoch, uh, might have been working on uh, in, on behalf of the interests of the Chinese Communist Party as some sort of like unregistered lobbyist or unofficial go-between or unofficial agent. And, you know, that I, was true as far as it goes. And you know, in other words, it's true well, that the FBI, goes pretty far if it's true. Well, here's the thing, you know, and and I and, I, you know, uh, again, not all these stories can be completely answered, even in 400 pages. But they never actually really presented any evidence that she had done anything wrong. And when I went to the FBI, they wouldn't tell me anything new. I did find out that her that they were friends for a very long time. And what had happened was their nanny, who's a Chinese national named Xi Xi. Uh, ended up becoming the Kushner's nanny. And that was another concern of the FBI. 
And all of that is to say that she's a in the world of murky U.S.-China backroom, you know, relations. Wendy Deng Murdoch is a huge question mark. And I and, you know, I'm just being transparent. I, I, didn't, I don't think I cracked it because it, in the end, it, it all amounts to a lot of coincidences and suspicions. And that I, if you're in the FBI, you could look at all of those coincidences and suspicions and just and understand, oh, well, we, maybe we should be very careful. But, you know, in the end, all that we really know is that, you know, she was born in China. She has this very interesting history. She ends up marrying Rupert Murdoch and, and, and coming to the United States. She went to Yale. She had a business career. And next thing you know, she's living in a building with the Kushners and then and the FBI is concerned about it. So, OK, another character yeah. who um, is one whose name we could be hearing more about um, over the coming year or so or not. But you write about him in the book and there are a lot of questions. Hunter Biden. Yeah. So, you know, what I write about was sort of the, the, the twofold. One is that before the election season, there had been a lot of reporting about uh, Hunter Biden and James Biden, President Biden's brother and their activities in China. OK. And there, there was a clear record. It was the New York Times. There was there was a book by Peter Schweitzer. who was linked to Bannon. But, you know, that to be sure. But there was there was a long New Yorker article to establish a pattern of Hunter Biden and James Biden doing business in China with Chinese executives. And that was non-controversial. But then when the election started, what Rudy and Bannon did was they dumped a pile of of crazy content on the Internet with barely an explanation. And that made the whole Hunter Biden story radioactive and it became too messed up to untangle. And, you know, that's that's my way of saying I think there is a legitimate story there. But I think that that story was impossible to report in that environment where you had all of these salacious allegations coming out that couldn't be checked. And it reminded me in a way, Michael, of sort of like the dossier from uh, from the Trump era, <laughs> because in a sense, that was, again, really salacious allegations that at that moment, couldn't many of them couldn't be. Now, I'm going to re-relitigate that. You're the expert on that, not me. But I'm just saying it evoked in my mind that because this time the media was like, no touching. OK, and that was pounced on by the Trump people to say, oh, well, you're protecting Hunter Biden. But my experience was that actually it was people out of an abundance of caution because they couldn't verify the info. And then <laughs> Woe started putting out the videos of Hunter Biden uh, spliced with disinformation and claiming that it came from the CCP and not from the laptop, which only muddied the waters further. And so and basically what I say in the book is like now that the election's over, I still think there's a legitimate story there. And I think there's a pattern of Hunter Biden and James Biden doing business with Chinese executives that have ties to the Chinese Communist Party. That's a legitimate story to report on. And I understand, you know, you know, neither you or I can control the information environment that we live in. In in in, in that information environment, partially due to the uh, what happened in 2016 and partially due to the way that Bannon and Rudy handled this, which I think they handled it poorly. You know, it became a, a story that was too messed up to untangle and too hot to handle, frankly, for most of us in the media. But now the election's over. So I think that the Biden administration should answer legitimate, reasonable questions about uh, President Biden's family members in the business in China, much of which is already on the record. Well, we agree. But in closing out, let me ask you, uh, Josh, about Hunter's dad, Joe Biden, what you think the uh, how you think the Biden administration is going to handle this relationship, uh, what what you've seen so far 
uh, that will give us some indication of that. You know, we talked about how they've also been tough on China in terms of their rhetoric. Uh, Jake Sullivan came out and said some pretty tough things. Um, you mentioned that uh, they've agreed with the Trump administration on some of their in- intel on potentially covering up uh, the virus. Um, and that there are also these different factions emerging. Where do you think things go and how will uh, the approach be different? Right, right. Great question. So I think, as we noted before, what we're seeing right now is a large degree of continuity. And what I hear from Trump administration officials uh, who are focused on China is, is a sigh of relief in the sense that they think that maybe the Biden administration might be able to do this competition thing in a more competent, organized, more multilateral uh, less chaotic way than they were able to get their boss, Donald Trump, to do it. And in that, they see they are optimistic, if, if you're in favor of a more competitive strategy, that the Biden team will largely get it right. Now, that my take on that is that the real battles over China inside the Biden administration have yet to be fought. And that will be set not so much about whether or not China presents a challenge that the United States must deal with, because I think that is a consensus. The question will be whether or not it's a priority that U.S. foreign policy is focused around. And, you know, what, we've only been in it in a six weeks. And what did they do? They bombed Syria and they have called Iran to, to get the meeting. And, you know, like it's already we're back to the old patterns. And, you know, you want to leave the Middle East, but the Middle East won't leave you, blah, 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 blah. And you can imagine the people who are concerned about China, they're looking at that. They're like, oh, I guess. We're looking at another repeat of uh, administration that promises in Asia a pivot to Asia, but never delivers. And then once like the climate change agenda gets mixed in, you know, we'll see how that screws with the plans to be uh, tougher on China. You know, I think in the end, you know, if they're smart and I think most of them are, the Biden people will understand that, you know, uh, as we as we sit here in our homes suffering over a year, just, a you know, of just horrible, horrible tragedy caused by both American government dysfunction and Chinese government dysfunction that, you know, we have to have a policy with China where we can both live together to avoid the conflict that neither of us wants. Okay. And that's the message of the book. That's the point of the book is we have to rebalance our relationship with China, but not defeat the CCP, not get into a cold war. That's a bumper sticker. Don't let them tell you it's a cold war or we do nothing. That's a false choice. We got to come up with a plan that we can live with and that somehow we got to convince the Chinese Communist Party to live with because they're not leaving. We're not leaving the earth. And, you know, as the pandemic showed us, our lives are really connected after all. A call for balance and moderation from Josh Rogan. (laughs) All right. Um, Josh, uh, congrats. The book is Chaos, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Anybody who cares about these matters should read it. Thanks again for joining us on Skullbuggery. Anytime. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. 